0: Here's the way Nancy MacDonald tells the tale. She writes, Dust, dirt, and the grimness associated with mining have long dominated Scranton history, but from 1871 until theatrical activity waned in the 1930s, Scranton was also a microcosm of the American theater. Major dramatic performers, renowned concert artists, headline vaudevillians, and newcomers just starting their careers viewed a Scranton success as a major accomplishment. Theater people regarded Scranton as a tough town to play. It allowed established stars to justify their reputations and made newcomers prove their right to hold the stage. Mediocrity was never excused, but at the same time, Scrantonians were quick to spot new talent and to applaud superb acting and fine production techniques. At first, the major fair consisted of musical performers, minstrels, and New York hits with their original casts. Later, as mines and foundries flourished, money became plentiful and people were willing to gamble on tryout productions. In the era before refrigeration, the habit developed of testing the freshness of meat on the family pet. If the dog turned it down, it was never set upon the table. In theatrical terms, the dog was a town where audience reactions had been honed to the point that they gave an accurate reflection of New York. With the turn of the century, Scranton became a major dog city. In Scranton, producers learned where major or minor repairs were needed, comedies whose laughs came in the wrong places or not at all, and dramas with no sustained intensity were either revised or scrapped. As a result, all too often, opening night was also closing night. Many an actor stepped to the rail terminal with two days' pay, six or eight weeks of grueling, unpaid rehearsal time behind him, and nothing in his future. A failure in Scranton meant another at-liberty notice in theatrical journals, another long stretch of living without funds. Local reporters reviewed all shows and took their jobs seriously. They were honest, forthright, even blunt. They praised what they liked, but never failed to point out flaws, even to the biggest names in American theater. And while most critics never obtained a byline, they and the audiences of Scranton helped create the show business axiom, If you can play Scranton, you can play anywhere. Words of Nancy MacDonald from her survey of theatrical history here from 1871 through 2010, aptly titled, If You Can Play Scranton. What's especially interesting for us is MacDonald's use of phrases like a failure in Scranton meant and comedies whose laughs came in the wrong places or didn't come at all we're about to hear from a performer who's on the road a lot and who knows the scranton area well she's a native ellen doyle is a stand-up comedian and writer who works with others to sharpen their material and their overall acts and she talks about the fail and the bomb and how they're essential to the craft failing on a given night in scranton or anywhere else should be a chance to gain much needed perspective just as the old-time producers learned where major or minor repairs were needed when the fail in Scranton happened. So, too, a bomb before clientele at a comedy club today, for example, can be really good in the long run for the performer. Ellen Doyle has toured all over the United States. She's played festivals and clubs and many other spots. She's been in the Slow Comedy Festival, the World Series of Comedy Top 50, and played the hollywood scranton and edinburgh fringe festivals she tells us her humor is autobiographical and expresses the lovable bitterness of an east coaster with topics ranging from her family to being jealous of the wrong things as a child she says she tells jokes in a way that is sarcastic dark unapologetic yet insanely charming She's learned a lot over the years, and she's developed a workshop titled Finding Your Comedic Voice with Ellen Doyle. In anticipation of the next round, we had a chance to speak with Ellen Doyle by phone. As a child, were you seeing the world in ways that maybe your parents didn't expect, or were you just kind of Ellen?
1: That's an interesting question based on what the class is about, because I feel like I was always just Ellen, and the class is based on your personal comedic authentic sound. I did start as a dancer, though. I was a dancer since I was two years old until I was about 26. And I think that performance element also comes into the stand-up. And I was, the writing was, was always there, but it's interesting the way our education system is is that no one wants you kind of to be too silly sometimes. You know, you're analyzing these great pieces of literature and stuff, and you're always looking at it more analytical. And it wasn't until... I got older that I really started writing more about the silly stories that have happened to me and my reactions to things and, and how I uh, look at the world. And, and that was an interesting kind of transition into being like, you just do stand-up.
0: <laughs> what about at school? Were you breaking kids up in the lunchroom? Was that just part of... A, well, I mean, a- if we're
1: going to start bragging, Erica, I am the class of O two 2 class clown. <laughs> Who needs an Emmy?
0: Credentials are backed up, Yeah. <laughs> No, I was
1: always silly. I was, even in, in the dance studio, I was always, I was always making jokes and stuff. It was like, it's, it was just a natural, I don't know. Part of it, I think, is is deflection. Part of it, I, I think, is you like hearing yourself talk or some of it is you just, you have it in your head and you're like, I got to share it. And, and I, and I think a lot of people actually have that. Who doesn't like making somebody laugh when you're around your friends or your family, people that you're close with, like they just get you. And the nights that you're sitting with somebody and you're just cracking each other up, like those are the best experiences and then to be like, how do I bring this how do I bring this character of the people that know me the best in life in front of an audience of strangers and have them like me equally as quickly and know me just as well from the first couple words that I'm going to speak on this stage and, and get them at that same level. It's really awesome.
0: You're inviting people to come to you to have sessions and strengthen that sense of voice. How are you trying to help people along their way in comedy? I think there's different approaches
1: for any sort of art form. You know, we're all, we're all trying to figure it out. But as my years as a comic and touring around the country and, and working clubs and then working coffee shops and doing, I mean, COVID was amazing. I've done things in like open fields now. You know? It's like ever, the world is literally a stage. But what I did notice a lot is that the art form of comedy is that it sounds like I'm saying this for the first time, but I'm not. You know, like, we, you've said this joke before. You know this bit. You know this story. And you can see that people are often, they're just trying to be like, I'll just go to a mic and I'll go to an open mic until somebody starts paying me. And that's not impossible. It's just a way longer route and, and could be impossible depending on where you are. That I think the class helps you get somebody into those writing habits, recognize who they are, who they are perceived by strangers, who they are with their friends and stuff and so that they can get an idea of this is what I naturally sound like and that's what needs to come on stage. And it's interesting because it seems so obvious, but it's one of the most difficult parts of your act to develop because we could all write jokes. You know, I'm sure you wrote something today or you said something to somebody and and they had a laugh. You know, you wrote a joke, but the reason why you got the laugh is because you were being authentic, you were being yourself, and you were doing all, all, all the points that I'm trying to go through in the class to make sure that people are doing it in a way that it's going to be more successful than just hoping that this joke is going to land.
0: Well, we always think in terms of theater and obviously dance, but also comedy, the sense of timing is so important. Yeah. Sometimes we just say that actors, well, you know, it's innate. Uh, Meryl Streep knows when to pause and that's it. You didn't teach her to do it. She just knows when to pause yourself, how do you think about timing? Do you test yourself? Do you stand in front of the mirror and deliver your material and try things? Or is it a gut thing? I think the more you do it, it becomes a gut thing. You can understand where you're at. If someone's
1: like, you're going to do 30 minutes. I know like, oh, I could, this is this is 30 minutes. I know if someone's like, you're going to do five and I can sense that four that I'm like, I'm going to wrap this up. But you can, you can hear that as you start to get more natural of yourself, I think. I think it's, it's actually harder to I think a lot of people, when they start out, do things where they're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to time this looking into the mirror, and this is five minutes. Great. But then you get in front of the audience, and when you're in front of the mirror, no one's laughing. It's just you. So that five-minute set that you recorded is actually a ten-minute set because you didn't pause for the fact that the audience is there. Like, it's a dialogue. You know, it's unlike like theater, where we're not so much interacting with the fourth wall, it's like stand-up is interacting with the fourth wall. I need your feedback. To come back to me to respond to this dialogue. So it's kind of tricky to, to just record it and be like, yep, that's it. Because then you're going to get in front of a live audience. And you're going to be like, well, I was completely off on that. <laughs> I forgot about the dialogue.
0: I just read an article, and whoever was writing it suggested that online performance for stand-up comics is here to stay. It grew in the pandemic, but mm-hmm. that it's going to be here to stay. How do you do that dialogue thing if you're in a Zoom box? How does that work? Have you had to do that? I did. The,
1: the Zoom shows are so different. A lot of times the audience is all muted, so you don't have the dialogue. Sometimes their cameras are off, so you can't even see that maybe they're you could see that they're laughing, but you can't hear <laughs> it's a It's a different muscle to flex for sure because it's going to change your cadence and your pacing to how you're performing your set. And it, it's interesting because it, it, oftentimes I feel like the Zoom things, you're like, that was a fail. Because you don't, you're not used to the live response, which is like, okay, I know this works. But it's, if you're just doing it with confidence, it's like, it's not a fail. And I think that's the other thing that's kind of interesting about stand up is unlike other art forms, or like you could still get a bad review, stand up is inevitable to hit a bomb. Dave Chappelle bombs, you know, and he'll sometimes actually, it's funny, he bombs on purpose so that he can work out new material because, of course, everybody knows him now. So he can come on stage and, and, Say booger, and everyone's like, Well, that was amazing. He's like, No, it's not. So he'll say something really messed up to, so that he could work on new material. But you need that failure in comedy. And I think that's what a lot of people, especially when they start out, because public speaking is so scary to begin with. You're by yourself up there. Because I've done theater, I've done improv, but it's great. I love that environment too. And when I started doing stand up, that's kind of the, the scary You're standing at the edge of the cliff by yourself. And if you make the step, you just fall. You don't have that teammate to be like, Let me reel you back in you just fall and you try to pull back from it. So it's it's interesting that the failure is always there.
0: Well, I'm curious, you just used the word fall and reel you in, and there's some physical metaphors, images that you're using there. Let's go back to your dancing. In any performing art, your body is part of it. So even if you're not dancing, I would assume you'd need to have the use of your body as an instrument to reinforce or even undercut what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. I'm still a major advocate for dance even though my body is a little a little aged to want to do it as often as I was when I was younger. <laughs> but we don't realize how much we're moving all the time anyway. You probably talk, I talk with my hands. Most people do naturally to express stuff. When you have that body awareness that really does play into the stand up because you're you might make a facial expression or, you know, a hand gesture that even pushes that punchline home even further because the audience relates to you so much. Because we've all, we've all been there, we've all done like the eyebrow raise, or it's like there's a natural movement that exists in human communication that would still be a part of your stand-up routine. You know, no one really likes a comic that is just going to stand with their feet together and their arms at the side and just talk monotone the whole time. They could. That person has to be a really good joke writer, but it's much harder, because it's, it's harder to connect to that person. The audience wants to connect to you immediately so that they can laugh with you. If if they're not connected to you, it's much harder for a person to laugh. Even if you're saying funny things, it's like you're you're laughing at someone that you relate to.
0: What about those people who like to talk back at you or say All the hecklers? Aw- yeah, awful <laughs> things to you. What is that phenomenon about? Why are they doing it? And is it part of the game or does it really become a hassle? You know, it's kind of both. It's it's interesting when you when you write out. You're set and you
1: have your jokes. If you're asking questions too much, the audience thinks you're – because it is a dialogue. You are talking to them. But if you're asking questions, they'll just answer you. You know, you're giving them control. And then that's where you're kind of like, oh, that person wasn't supposed to yell. At it. If you could say something funny to shut them up and get the, the energy back focused on you, great. But a heckler, a lot of times it's, a, it's just a drunk patron, <laughs> if we're being honest. It's somebody who thinks that they can do what you're doing because the art form seems so natural and off the top of your head, and they're just going to yell out and try to ruin the show. Most people don't like hecklers. You know, the audience doesn't like it when that person yells out because they're like, hey, I, I paid to come to this show. I don't care what dude at table six is talking about. Uh, they usually get removed from situations, but they're always there. And I, I think a lot of it, I actually had this really funny, early on in my career, I had this really funny heckler. It was the weirdest thing because he... He was heckling, but he was complimentative. Like, everything that my parents got divorced when I was a kid, so I have material about that, and I'd be like, my parents got divorced, and he would be like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And it was so distracting. And I was like, that guy's heckling, but he's not, he's not being like, you suck. He's being, oh, that must have been really hard. It was, but if you could just be quiet for a minute, I'll tell you the humor that goes into it. So I think people don't understand sometimes that just saying something out loud is heckling. It's because, it's because the fourth wall is, is more exposed in that art form because you don't yell out during like Hamlet, <laughs> I know who did it, you know, he's gonna betray you. Like, you don't do that. But in comedy, it's interesting because the audience knows that the fourth wall is that they could technically be a part of it, they get looser to do it. And there, there's ways to make sure that you're constantly in control. That doesn't happen. And if it does happen, there's ways to make sure that you get it back. And sometimes you fail, which what I was talking about before, like that bomb is, I think that's what scares a lot of people. And it's something else I talk about in the class. The bomb is inevitable. And the better you get at it, the less likely it happens, but still there. And sometimes those bombs, sometimes you recover from them and you're like, great, I kind of dipped and now I'm back up. We're fine. And sometimes you don't recover from them. And it's a really... The thing I really love about this art form is that after you have that set that you're like, wow, that didn't go well, you have this amazing self-reflection of what what was I doing wrong? Was I not having fun? Was I not being honest about the situation? You know, did I lose confidence? And it's all these things that you're like, if I don't fear this this failure, because just let it bomb. You're a clown. You know, <laughs> like, you can't take it so seriously. And it's like, and that's the worst it could ever get. But I think the longer you do stand up, The more enjoyable when that bomb comes, in retrospect, it is. It's not like, oh, I'm not good enough. It's like, sure you are. You've done this a million times. Sometimes you just have an off night. Just like sometimes you walk into the office and, you know, you just didn't finish that report in time. It's the same thing. But performers just put more pressure on themselves.
0: Well, you've done comedy all around the country. Are there differences, geographic differences in audiences? A demographic shift. But do you get a sense that there are some places that are better to play are there hard places to play?
1: It's definite, there's definitely demographics, and I think right now they're, they're mostly divided in a red state or a blue state. And it's, it's interesting because I think Pennsylvania, like the swing ones, they're actually so fun to play because you're talking to everybody, because we, we don't all agree with each other, and it's, it's kind of cool. You want, we want those kind of like middle ground. We don't have to all agree with each other. We all go to the same place and have a good time. And then uh, I often think, and I started in Los Angeles, I think blue states sometimes get a little, they get offended more easily than a red state, which is surprising because blue states, this is kind of my theory on it, blue states, a lot of liberals are often atheists, and atheists, if you say something a little messed up, they're like, you're a jerk, where in a red state they're religious, and if you say something a little messed up, they're like, you're joking, because God would never make somebody... That is a piece of junk, you know. <laughs> it's kind of fun that even if you agree with people politically, sometimes it's hard to connect to them because everybody's everyone's a little bit sensitive. Comedy's interesting in that regard, where certain things are triggering at this point. But but yeah, it's it's a little different, and it's funny because like the West Coast, they they live a, a different life. They're they're out in the mountains. They're kind of secluded from each other. Like those cities are all very far away from each other. Where on the East Coast is such an interesting place to play because you think just even. Scranton in general, I know people growing up here that are Steelers fans, Cowboys fans, New York Giants fans Patriots fans, it's like we're all over the country it's like it's such a, but we feel so connected to these other spots and so the Northeast is always, is always a, a killer place to play because you're touching everything and some of those rural, middle of the country places are like all the way out west are, are very insular on what their opinions and ideals are, which is still a lot of fun and I think the other thing that's interesting when you're traveling around is is what I always do is I read the I read the news or I watch the local news when I'm in hotels and places I haven't been because sometimes you're seeing like, oh, this happened, this happened on the news today, so maybe I won't do that one joke or that actually reminds me of this other thing that's really funny, I'm going to talk about it. And that helps too. It's like you're you're learning about local news and, and what these communities are all dealing with. And then at the end of the day, you realize that it's like we're all exactly the same. And if I know what you're dealing with on a community level, then I can hit you on connecting with me on a comedic level.
0: When you talk then about what people are sensitive about, you sent to me a clip of one of your sets, and you're talking about childhood cancer. A lot of people who don't do comedy would say, maybe I wouldn't go there. But you go there and you find a way to be walking that line. So what about pushing boundaries and things that might be sensitive, childhood cancer, yeah. cancer, or the pandemic itself with all the yep. hundreds of thousands of deaths and so forth? How do you decide how far to push it and why do you do that? I think part of it is to know what you think is
1: funny and to pull from experience. So the joke that you're talking about is, is actually a joke that gets me a lot of work, which is crazy because my mom hates that joke. <laughs> And she's like, I hate that joke, but I know that it pays your bills. And I'm like, it does. Because if you listen and you just hear the word cancer, you're like, ah, I'm done. But if you're listening to the words, it's like, this is my actual experience as a, as a seven-year-old's perspective, not understanding the major ramifications of what my friend was dealing with, but kind of looking at it as a seven-year-old being like, man, she got to go on vacation. Not fair. Because even as a, they explained it to us as a seven-year-old, but we didn't understand it. We didn't, we didn't grasp that this could inevitably be one of our classmates' final days. And, and thankfully, she did not die. And I think that helps with the, the humor of it, even though you could probably still write stuff about someone that does pass away. There's that uh, comedy equals tragedy plus time is the formula. You're still, you could still, tragedy still exists, and a lot of times comedy is the way that so many of us deal with it because you could either make kind of a, a joke just to even laugh, even if you know I shouldn't even—I laugh at this. This feels terrible. But the dopamine in your body just feels laughter, and you're like, I kind of feel a little bit better about this thing that shouldn't be funny. And I think oftentimes the human brain does laugh at things that we know shouldn't be funny, and that's in itself humorous because it's almost like saying, saying the word that you're not allowed to say. Like You're like, oh, we're not supposed to do that, and everyone's like, yeah, we're going to laugh at it. Because, like, we're in trouble when you're a kid and you're like, oh, well, I'm not supposed to call mom by your first name. But I did it, so me and my siblings all laughed at it. It's that kind of idea of breaking the rules, but it's still, you're not hurting anybody because sticks and stones may break your bones. You know, like, you're not, you're not hurting anybody by saying that in, in particular. And, and if people do get offended, because that, that joke has, has failed. And I actually did it for, like, a solid year crushing and then was in a competition and I did it in the first round, and I got first place in the first round with it, and the audience loved it. And the next night, I did it in the second round, and the rules for the competition were you have to do the same bit you did last night. And I was like, okay. And uh, they did not like it. <laughs> and then that's the example of the fail. And so I dealt with the fail, and then what was crazy was that the fail also gave me 20 new tags are different ways to say that joke because I was like, I've never analyzed it in a different way before because it was always working. And when it didn't work, I was like, oh, now I'm going to say it like this, now I'm going to say it like that, now I can segue out of it this way if it seems like, like I'm reading the audience, it seems like it's getting too complicated for them. But there's nothing in the, in the bit that says, I, I, wish, I wish that kid died. You know, and I think people need to be less sensitive, like listen to the words and be like, yeah. Because I've also done it where in a table of, children's doctors were actually there and they were like, I work with exactly what you're talking about and it is actually kind of funny. You you know what I mean? It's like, it's interesting who gets offended by things. It's like, here's someone who's dealing with this on a regular basis and then someone else might be like, oh, my friend's kid's cousin's best friend, you know, and you're kind of like, you're offended by something that's so removed from you where someone where it's like right in front of them usually isn't offended because they can see the humor and the fact because if not, you know that an oncologist doctor isn't going to be like, yeah, every day I just feel bad. Because they couldn't. Because you couldn't go to work then. You know, you'd do a different field if every day you're like, I just come into the office and cry because this isn't fair. It's like you're trying to make a difference. And humor can help that.
0: You're talking about doctors. There a table of doctors and oncologists. There were. It's almost a cliche. Laughter is the best medicine. But do you get a sense that it is in some way healthy, healing? Yeah, I do think that laughter
1: is the best medicine. and, And I do think that especially these difficult times and, and COVID has been I mean, what a ride for all of us for lack of like it's it's been up, it's been down. There there's these weird silver linings to it that you're like, I got to spend more time with my kids or, or what you know, I got to realize that maybe when I do go back to the office I'm not gonna do it the way I was because I wanna do A B C. Like it it was interesting, but then at the same time you're like, Oh, I just found out my friend had COVID and they're gone by the end of the week and It's like, what are we dealing with? And if we all sat down and just were miserable about it, I mean, I honestly think just internally we would shut our organs down and more of us would have gotten it. And more of us would have perished from it because we wouldn't have been strong enough to be like, it's okay. And move forward and give the the bad and the sour parts of life a smile because it's the only way through it.
0: Well, now you're inviting anyone to explore the idea of finding a comedic voice and developing it. Tell us what you do when you, when you offer these courses or workshops.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have one currently going on right now. The cool thing, this is one of those silver linings of the pandemic, is because it's online, my students right now, some are from Pennsylvania, some are from Massachusetts. Um, I have someone from Phoenix and uh, California. So you're, you're being able to network with comics all across the country, which is very cool because our job travels us everywhere. And so right off the bat, it's great. And then I, I do have a split where there, there are a few students in the class right now that have never done stand-up. And then there are a couple that have been doing it like three, three years, five years, and, and they're getting the same benefit because sometimes it's good to hear those things to remember from the first time doing it after you've been doing it for a couple of years. And those first timers are getting this like fast track into kind of looking at it as a theory instead of just, it's kind of hard, like I said, that comedic voice, it's hard to get your footing with it to start with. And so I think it's a great approach to learning comedy to really start focusing on the the hardest thing that it's going to be to develop, because that's always going to be in the back of your head. You're going to get so much better at it faster. And it's also great for someone who just wants to get better at public speaking, wants to be better at writing. Because in the world of stand-up, it's such an interesting art form. I perform stand-up comedy, but I also write scripts for people. I also punch up jokes or scripts for people. I have friends that write jokes for popsicle sticks. And it all comes from this stand-up writing concept. <laughs> and it really is this, this art form that, that goes beyond just the one element. So it can help so many people in whatever type of comedic voice direction that they want to go in.
0: How do they find you and how do they sign up? And when's the next one?
1: So the next one is starting May 19th. Uh, it's a Wednesday. It'll run for four Wednesdays. You can go to ellendoylecomedy.com for more information on the class. Email me. You can just take a one-on-one session. You could take the class. Uh, all the classes right now are actually coming with a free one-on-one session, which my students have really enjoyed because we do the whole class session and then they have a whole hour of just me and them trying to push their stuff to be as best as it can be, which is really helpful to have someone just look at your jokes constantly. And uh, yeah, it starts May 19th. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's on Zoom. I'll send you the link when you sign up. Everyone's having a lot of fun with it. And I just really hope to to bring more people into the workshop that we've we've been having such a blast in and, and bring others into this world.
0: Now, Ellen, you didn't hear this, but we told our listeners at the start of this feature that Scranton used to be considered a major dog city. Tell us about your dog. Say something funny. Introduce us to Ghost.
1: (laughs) Ghost and I actually... I also, what I did in Los Angeles, I make reality television, and Ghost and I met on an Animal Planet show, and against all professionalism, we fell in love. She was supposed to go to this one cast member, and then at the end of the show, he didn't want her. So now she is my pup. She's a Jack Russell. She's a ball of love, and I have seen her murder animals five times.
0: You're saying she's the
1: one who's famous.
0: That's pretty funny.
1: (laughs) She is. She's the one that has the TV credit, riding your coattails ever since. I don't even get her residual checks. It's crazy. (laughs)
0: Ellen Doyle, stand-up comedian, writer, and sound engineer from Lackawanna County, speaking with us about the art and craft of comedy in anticipation of the next online workshop she'll offer, titled Finding Your Comedic Voice with Ellen Doyle, beginning May 19th at 8 p.m., and that's Zoom, running for four weeks. For more information on the web, ellendoylecomedy.com, D-O-Y-L-E, Ellen Doyle, comedy.com. You can also see a photo of Ghost Dog, too. <laughs> Ellen Doyle, stand up comedian and writer from Lackawanna County, and she spoke with us about the art and craft of comedy that she practices all around the country and even in the UK. And she has an online workshop, and that's Finding Your Comedic Voice with Ellen Doyle, beginning Wednesday, May 19th at 8 p.m. online, and it's running for four weeks. There are variations on that formula, and for more information on the web, ellendoylecomedy.com. And don't forget to look for Ghost Dog.